you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, reading verses 17 through 19a. It's found on page 1011 of the Black Pew Bible. 1011, James chapter 1. Remember that as we come back to James 1, Pastor James would have you to be, would have every Christian to be, perfect. That's the word he uses in verse 4. It's a rather strong word. Teleuse is the Greek word. But he explains it even in the same verse, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. In other places in the New Testament, that word teleuse is translated as mature or fully grown. So that James would have us to be a, a church full of Full-grown Christians, not babies, not uh, weaklings, but those who can really bear burdens, those who can really withstand the age of the church that we live in with all its temptations, with all its trials, with all its suffering, with all its persecution, even as Terry reminded us this morning. Last time in verses 12 through 15, we said that James was really tearing into our deception about temptation, uh, confronting us in the lies we believe about temptation. And we pointed to the, the singular most important fact about defeating temptation, knowing that temptation is a desire in the heart, was not to have desires toward bad things, evil things, but desire towards the right thing, towards God, to desire God. Desiring God frees us from the lesser things we might desire, the temptations we might have other way, uh, otherwise. And so, when he picks up in verse um, 17 this evening, I think James, well, I know James, is speaking about God. He is beginning to make a case for why you should desire God, love God. And so, we'll turn to our verses this evening. Look at James chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to Pastor James and the argument he's making. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Of course, the original text has no paragraphs and no verse, uh, verses and chapters. It's really all the words are smashed together with just capital letters. So, it's an interpretive decision where verse 16 attaches to and where verse 19 attaches to somewhat besides the point, but I do think verse 19 is summarizing what came before, and verse 16 is summarizing what came before. Now, we, that, that's a minority position, but I, I think it is a good exhortation. He is calling us to know what He's just said about God. I'm always… Um, we get in the car after Sunday evening service, and you know, Abby asks our five-year-old Jenny, what was the sermon about? She doesn't always have a good answer. That's rather depressing for me. But this time she has no excuse. The sermon is about God. 
So you can, your wives can ask your husbands, the sermon is about God, and the sermon is trying to give an explanation for why you should love God. I think that's what he's talking about here. Back up in verse 12, he had mentioned that those who receive the crown of life are those who, whom God has promised to those who love Him. The receivers of the crown of eternal life by Christ at the end of days are those who love God. Those who love God are those who defeat temptation, those who have a desire in their heart for God, who are able to overcome temptations. So he goes on in verse 17 to 18, this is why you should love God. And I have three points, three reasons you should love God, and we'll unveil them as we go. But the very first one is that God is the source. God is the source. You should love God because He's the source. That's what it says there in verse 17. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. It's like He's the the spigot from which every blessing comes. Um, As a child, when we had Thanksgiving dinner and we had uh, sparkling grape juice the one night a year, you know, I think I don't know if it was connected to the Willy Wonka movie, but I always thought it would be the greatest thing ever if we just had a spigot of sparkling grape juice that you could just go to and turn it on and put your mouth under. That would be the coolest thing. Almost like a hamster, you know, with the water coming into it. And Terry makes the point often that we aren't so different often from our pets, from our dogs and cats that live Uh, one meal or one scrap from the table to the next. They're always on the lookout for the next snack, for the next little pleasure, the next thing to fill the tummy. No, it's so, whether whether it's food or whether it's we live from one vacation to the next or one football season to the next or one shopping trip to the next, we all have a bit of hedonist in us. We all contend to live from pleasure to pleasure. And the problem with that, the, pleasure, the problem with us always being pleasure hunters is that physical worldly pleasures have two fundamental flaws, universal fundamental flaws of pleasures. The first one being that they all have side effects and they all have diminishing returns. Every pleasure has a negative side effect. Uh, you enjoy food and drink, well, it makes you fat. You enjoy exercise, well, eventually it will injure you. You enjoy TV, video games, well, the screen deteriorates your eyes, the content debases your mind, and there's little return on your investment of time. Perhaps you enjoy vacation or travel, which most of us, I assume, are are limited financially enough that we have to come home sometime. But even if uh, we had the ability to stay on vacation, even the best vacations end with a longing, I think, to be home and in your own bed. Not only is there this this fundamental flaw of side effects in our worldly pleasures, but also always diminishing returns. It always takes a little more salt than the time you used before to get the same flavor. It always takes a little more alcohol to to get the same buzz. It always takes a little more of the drug to get the same high. You name the pleasure, it begins to wear off. And the end of our pleasures, between their negative side effects and diminishing returns, if we are nothing but pleasure hunters, is it universally leads us to despair. You think of the people or the celebrities in our culture. You could pick one of a hundred names, whether it be Elvis Presley or Michael Jackson, who, who live pursuing pleasure until it destroys them. 
they should have listened to James. Because James is calling you in our text not simply to look to the pleasure, but through the pleasure, the good gift that God has given. He says, look, every good gift comes from above. Every physical pleasure that has you know, side effects and diminished returns is a gift from God, but it's not an end in itself. Warm sunshine, apple pie, baseball, Beethoven, all from God. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, memorably, Uncle Screwtape, the, the senior tempting demon is, demon, is writing to Wormwood, the lesser demon who's tempting, uh, and he, Screwtape explains that the devil's research and development department has never once yet come up with a pleasure on their own. He explains that all the pleasures of the world are from God, and it's our job to twist them, pervert them. C.S. Lewis further explains in his, one of his great sermons in the, the Weight of Glory, Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, this is why you should love God. Every breath you've ever breathed, every morning light you've ever seen, every sunset, every warm cup of coffee, every cold cup of sweet tea, every piece of brisket melting in the mouth, every kiss that's made your heart explode, every laugh that's stolen your breath away was not an end in itself, but a proof of the goodness and graciousness and generosity of God who is the source of every blessing. Every pleasure we've ever had is but a passing shadow and a sign of the source of every blessing. Stopping short, uh, going only to the physical blessing and not through it is like, it's like showing up to Disney World and just stopping outside the gate and just being amazed at the monorail and topiaries. Never going into the park to get the full, the full thing. No, every good gift, James says, is from above. We're meant to think through the pleasures. I do think that's what that first phrase has a sense of God's common grace, distinct from that second phrase in verse 17. It says, every good gift, common grace, and every perfect gift is from above. Remember that word perfect is that word tell use again that has a distinct meaning and repetition in the book of James. We might say it's every good gift and every perfecting gift. That is, everything a Christian might need to be perfect, tell you, mature in Christ, to be full-grown. All you need in life for joy and godliness, contentment, peace beyond understanding, He gives. This is what he was saying even back in verse 5. Look there, he tells you, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Why? Because every good gift is from God. Every perfecting thing, everything you need to grow and mature, God gives it freely. Ask him. He loves to give them. He isn't stingy. 
It's not like me trying to buy soccer cleats for my kids. You know, I, they'll, you know, their feet grow fast. I just need them to last one season and to give them a little traction. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel, of, you know, just to get them whatever they need. You know, no, the Lord, he, he's, he's special ordering the custom Lionel Messi gold-plated cleats for his kids. He's given them all they need to succeed. He spares no expense. He sent his own son to save us from our sins, to give us all we need. Every perfect gift is from above. He's the source of all common grace and special grace, all that's needed for salvation and sanctification. And notice there in verse 17 further, the way James has a a bit of a unique phrase in verse 17. He calls him the the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Commentators point out that this is a kind of poetic Hebraism, making an allusion to the, the fatherhood of God, especially in creation. Genesis chapter 1 is the allusion here. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. In verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Yes, those things which most of human history, uh, humans have been tempted to worship, James reminds us, God spun them into existence. He is the father of them. He begat them in a sense. And if you think the sun, moon, and stars are amazing, wait until you meet their maker. So you should love God. He's the source of every good thing you've ever had in your life. Everything that's ever happened to you. He created the whole world in the principle of fecundity and superabundance. You know, he didn't only make like five different kinds of animals or, you know, maybe seven different kinds of colors, or a couple hundred different species. No, there's 8.7 million species in the world, more than we needed. There's, you know, not seven colors. There's seven to ten, depending on how you're counting, different colors in the light spectrum. And you start going into space, and the, the numbers get really silly. 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And then there's apparently perhaps two trillion other galaxies. I don't know what two trillion times 300 billion is. It's more than was needed. That's the creator of the universe, making with super abundant generosity every good, every perfect gift, the father of lights, splendiferous variation. You should love him. He's lovable and lovely because he is so generous to you. So their first point, the first reason you should love God is because God is the source of all good things. Second reason is because God is the same. He's the source and He's the same. Look again at verse 17 with me. It says, He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, He's distinct from His creation. His creation is variable. It's always changing. You, you can't stop the sundial. It's always moving. The, the shadows and the moon is changing. The stars are shifting in the sky. Their Father is not like that. Now, the overwhelming revelation from the Scriptures, the, the highest and holiness, uh, holiest uh, of His self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. Not 
I was, who I'm becoming, or I'm going to be someday, who I'm supposed to be. No, he is the fully actualized, absolute, perfect God who does not and cannot change. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, I can imagine my children or someone being tempted to think that, you know, sameness is kind of boring. You know, we're a culture that loves newness and variation and interesting creativity, but it would be wrong to think God's changelessness, His sameness, His immutability in any way limits His creativity or His newness. No, being infinite and eternal, the depth of the riches of His interestingness never ends. He is, while never changing, unendingly creative and glorious and good. But further, I would argue that His sameness rather than being any way boring, is one of the very things that makes him so lovely. One of the things that makes him so lovely. It's lovely, it makes him lovely because it makes him unique. You know, we, we love unique things. You love your wife and your kids because they're your wife and kids. They're unique to you. They, they, their voice, you know it. They have a smell, you know it. Um, and unique to them. Um, my, my brother-in-law is the Tennessee commissioner of insurance and commerce or something like that, but he, he, he visits a bunch of state capitals doing business and things in the state of Tennessee, and he was up in New Hampshire and Vermont and visited their state capitals, and he, he was struck because every one of these state capitals he visits, they all have some kind of claim, like the oldest continuously working state capital. Well, that was the same claim the Tennessee state capital building made, but so did New Hampshire's also, which is, well, when you get down to the fine print, you know, the New Hampshire one, it's like has to do with the original furniture or interior, and Tennessee has to do with the exterior, but they're all making claims to their uniqueness. We love unique things. We can't help it. Every, you know, tourist trap on the highway, whether it's the smallest church or the oldest continually operating church, we want to see it. It's one of a kind. There's nothing more one of a kind, more unique, than a God who does not change. He is the only one and can be the only one in whom there is no shifting in shadow. He, he is lovely in His sameness as it makes Him unique, but also as it makes Him stable in a world of flux. Perhaps you sometimes feel like uh, things are moving so fast. You can be drowning in a sea of changing styles uh, uh, and to have a solid rock upon which to stand. He provides stability for our lives. You know, the, We've all remarked in our sermons over the last few years, from 2016 to 2020, to Trump, to COVID, to the moral transformation. You know, the state of California passed Proposition 8, banning same-sex marriage, not in 1950, not 1960, in 2008. The whole state of California voted to ban same-sex marriage. Barack Obama and John McCain both met for a campaign stop together at Rick Warren's Evangelical Saddleback Church. Talk about things that would never happen 15, 17 years later. Now, life comes at you fast. Change is always happening. Dependable things in life are hard to find. Stability is hard to find. No, um, other than death and taxes, Perhaps one of the most dependable things is everything's undependability, except for God. He is unique, 
and he is stable. But also this sameness, this unchangingness, makes him, thirdly, in this way, lovely because he's transcendent. He's awe-inspiring. God, you see, the God of the Bible, is the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, to whom a thousand years is a day and a day a thousand years, 2 Peter 3. This makes him utterly transcendent because things that stay glorious are transcendent. You know, Beethoven's music doesn't dim with each passing century. The cathedrals built thousands of years ago are in some ways more impressive as we lose the art of how they were even constructed. So with God. He does not get less impressive, but only more in His transcendent immutability. Indeed, we could some way speak, perhaps rightly, perhaps not, of Him being outside time, or the very thing upon which time itself exists. Without mass, is there time? No, this, this sameness makes Him, by definition, the most powerful being in the universe. Uh, you know, Hollywood has, has caught on in some ways recently to this idea, whether it be Christopher Nolan making all these movies that deal in one way or another with time and its power and your confinement by it in Dunkirk or Interstellar or Tenet or Inception. He is butting up against the greatest power of the universe, the timekeeper. Or if it's in the silly Marvel cinematic universe where, you know, each movie has to be more dramatic than the previous one. You know, Spider-Man saves a neighborhood, then he saves the city, then the Avengers save America, and then they save the world from an internal threat of AI, and then they save the world from aliens that come, but then they save the, gar- the galaxy with the gardens of the galaxy, but then they save the whole universe, and then in saving the universe, how do they do that? Well, they manipulate time. They go back in time, but that starts a whole multiverse, and now they're fighting against the guy who's in charge of time. Yeah, at some point you hit, a, you hit a ceiling of bad guys. It can't get any bigger than that. The multiverse with all… I've lost interest at some point. It's gotten a little silly. But they have this right. He who controls time is the most glorious, the most powerful, the one who controls all things. You should love God because He's the source of all good. You should love God because He's the same always. That makes Him unique and transcendent and stable. And you should love God thirdly and finally because He's sovereign. He is the source. He is the same. He is the sovereign. Look at verse 18 with me. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Here's one of the great proof texts in all the Bible of a single verse arguing for the sovereignty of God in salvation. His own will brought you forth. That is, not your will who brought you forth. He did it. Here James, you might say, is presuming the fundamental doctrines of our human nature, namely that we are Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sins. That no one seeks for God, Romans 3. That we've all been given over to a foolishness of our minds, Romans chapter 1. That our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Above all evil, who can trust them, Jeremiah 17.9. Ezekiel 36, we need a new heart, and you can't do heart surgery on yourself. No, He is the prime mover in our salvation. Verse 18b, He 
by His own will, brought us forth by the word of truth. Now that phrase, by the word of truth, is used four other times in the New Testament. And every other time, and I think including this time, it's a way of saying the gospel. He brought us forth by the gospel. Just as Jesus called to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And up out the grave came Lazarus. So the word of truth, the gospel of God, the good news of the cross, the power of God and salvation calls us forth. Other than Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and John 17 and John 1, it's tough to find a single verse with more Calvinism in it. This is big God theology in verse 18. This is not a God like, you know, I always feel funny making an allusion to a picture of Jesus among those who don't believe in pictures of Jesus, you know, but perhaps you've seen it somewhere and have hopefully forgotten it, but maybe not for this illustration. The picture of Jesus knocking on your heart, seeing if you might let him in. That is not the theology of James 1.18. The sovereign God of all the universe calls us forth with authority. He is not waiting meekly to see if we might open the door to Him. No, the, the very existence of grace depends upon the theology of James 1.18. That this is a God who is not dependent upon my choosing or my own will. The thing that makes a difference between me and my neighbor that doesn't know Christ is not because... I chose them and they didn't. Even if we held a semi-Pelagian position that God foreknew because He was able to look down the corridors of time and see that I would choose, the fundamental criterion, the, the, the condition of God's choosing me was fundamentally my choosing. And that's not grace. That indeed, that choosing itself is a kind of merit. No, the thing that is the problem with that theology is how do I know I will not unchoose God? If it is my choosing that is the basis of my salvation, then my salvation is as fickle as I am, and that's a fearful thought. But if your salvation and my salvation is by His own will, then nothing is deeper and darker and more secure and more mysterious and more unchanging and eternal, being chosen in Ephesians 1 from before the foundation of the world. Nothing is more sure than being in the secret mind of the will of God from before the foundation of the world. That's a glorious good news gospel. That's grace that's based upon Him and not upon me. It's an unconditional election, not by my keeping the conditions or choosing Him, but because of His own will He brought you forth by the word of truth. Another thing about this sovereign grace, this sovereign God that ought to make us love Him is not only that it upholds the reality of grace, but also that it gives us, makes us a part of His gracious purpose in all the history of the world. Verse 18, it says, we are a kind of firstfruits. Firstfruits in the Old Testament were the, the offering off the top. You know, you bring uh, the, the first chickens and the, well, I don't know if they had chickens, but they had the first lambs and the corn, and they, they offer a, as, as the, the symbol of, of all that would, uh, would follow it in the harvest. So James' audience in the first century, you know, maybe there's a couple thousand Christians by the end of the first century, perhaps 10,000 or more. But by the 21st century, counts put us today in the billions 
Indeed, they were the first fruits. And indeed, we are too, a kind of first fruits. His work is not done. He will conquer the globe. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun we sing. And we mean it. That's what the Bible says. We are a kind of first fruits. So the God of the Bible is worthy of all your love and admiration and desire because He's a source of all good. Because He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And because He is sovereign over all salvation. In desiring Him, the temptations of the world lose their luster and power. In knowing Him, and knowing that God James describes, in loving Him, verse 12, has held out the crown of life. And I... I have to ask you, you have to ask yourself, do you love God? That's the most important question that could be asked. Do you love Him? And what if you don't? Then there is nothing more important than all the world than you should cry out to Him and ask Him to take away your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh that He would cause you to even to want to want God. Because if you ask Him, He who lacks wisdom, he will give it. Take it to the bank, the promise of God. He responds to that prayer. There is no hope without it. To desire him, to taste him, to know that he indeed is good. Lord, not tis I did choose thee, that I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse thee, had had your grace not chosen me. You removed the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me that I live for you alone. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you. For your grace alone I thirst, knowing well that if I love you, O Father, You have loved me first, our Father in heaven. Our hearts are cold. We so desperately need the fire and the warmth you provide. I pray, Father, that you would, if there be anyone here who doesn't know you, they would call out to you. You would reveal yourself to them and they would love you, knowing that you never change, that you're the source of every good and sovereign in salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.